0: Past Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPelle.com.
1: What the f- you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. F- so the Tribe drops its third straight of this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say one hit. That's all we've got. One goddamn hit. Just remember, it's not a lie if you believe. it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and
0: still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team
2: sucks. Well, he's out. Yes, he's out. Look at this. is out. And the team is mad. I'm not here to argue
3: about other sports. I'm in the baseball. This can run
2: cleaner than any... Baseball,
3: best
0: that was ever put out in the 100 years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome aboard. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, hour two of the program. And just want to take a couple minutes to wish everybody a happy new year. Of course, this is the first uh, Passball Show of 2014. And hopefully, everything in 2013 went the best it could for you. I got to say, personally, you know, it was a great year for me. I, you know, I've got a chance to do a lot of stuff with my show and everything that I'm looking to pursue in regards to baseball. And just remember, you know, your year is what you make it. And, you know, whatever whatever you're able to put in and just take all the negativity and all the downfalls and everything that's not going right out and just focus on what you can do to make your year better. So hopefully 2014 is a great year for everybody. And obviously on a personal level, just hoping to build up the momentum that I built up with a strong 2013. But we're going to start this hour off by playing an interview I recorded with a pitcher that used to pitch in the Oakland Athletics organization, he ended up pitching a little bit with the A's minor league teams and the Detroit Tigers minor league teams and ended up having a call a career, but he ends up becoming a Major League Baseball certified player agent now, and his name is Scott Drucker, and he kind of made the transition into being an agent now, and he's a guy that you know has done a lot you know, in the last couple of years since he stopped pitching. And kind of has himself a second career. So hopefully, you guys enjoy this interview with former minor league pitcher for the A's and Tigers, and now major league baseball player agent Scott Drucker.
1: It's John Pielli. I'm here with former minor league pitcher Scott Drucker. Scott, what's going on, man? I'm
2: just hanging out in South Florida, enjoying a beautiful eighty degree
1: day. Nice, man. I wish it was like that over here, man. We got a, you know, we got the the winter over on the northeast, man, and it's just not gonna it's not gonna subside anytime soon, you know. Yeah, yeah. All right, Scott. Well, of course, you know you got a, You got. A, you were drafted in uh, 2004 in the 13th round, um, out of Tennessee, and you ended up, uh, you know, pitching in the Oakland Athletics organization. Tell us a little bit about the beginning. You know, you are drafted. You end up pitching professionally for the first time. Yeah, no, it was, uh,
2: it was an interesting experience. I Started at the University of Florida, actually, and uh, had two coaching changes over there. I played under Eddie Lopez, is now in Arizona, and Patrick Pan, who's the international scouting director for the Yankees. Uh, so there's a little, you know, posting change. went over to Tennessee, didn't really know much about pro ball. Kind of the still was, uh, had my blinders on, but I didn't know any better, you know, getting to the next level, just, you know, getting stories. So got drafted, got a call from Oakland, who actually hadn't sent me any forms or letters or anything. And, uh, you know, we got a deal done and shot me out to Vancouver. And it was uh, a pretty cool experience, just to be able you know, read the country, let alone, and start, you know, getting
1: paid to play a kick sport. Yeah, absolutely, man. I tell you, it must have been a fun experience. Now, you know, pretty much, and just looking at, you know, looking at, you know, your numbers and you you pitching, you kind of bounced a lot within uh, being a starter to being a reliever. Was that a, you know, was, uh, Did you? I would assume you particularly started in college, right? It was, it was funny. Uh, my, I, I was a swing man
2: in kind of Florida, I and mean, when I went over to Tennessee, I was a closer, Yes, I was, you know, the college closer comes in anywhere from the sixth inning on, so, um, it was, I, I didn't mind, you know, whatever I needed to do for the team at, at the college level, and then selfishly, you know, you got to do what's best for you or whatever the organization's been at the professional level, so, uh, you know, the more I there, I think it's fine, you might as I could have two arm surgeries down the road, but, I mean, that could just be from you know normal wear and tear, not just swingman stuff. But like I said, I didn't mind it. I was one of those guys that you know, appreciate a rubber arm. Um, It was fun. Uh, It kept me trying different roles. It kept me in the bullpen. It kept me away from chart duty, radar gun duty. You know, so it was uh best of
1: all No, absolutely and tell you, you know, as, you, as you come up through the system you know you're kind of going you know back and forth between being a starter and a reliever at, at just about you know every level from you know all the different A levels you're in up until double A and then you know eventually after you know after you end up in a Detroit organization when you get up to AAA, uh, you know was, was there any, any time within that that you just kind of w- w- would have just hoped that you got stuck in one certain role?
2: There was a couple times, yeah, uh, just for, you know, the, the stuff that was happening up top at the big league level, you know, just, just maybe if I stayed a reliever, you know, with the, you know, more positions at the reliever roles, I might have had a better chance getting up there. Um, it just got a little frustrating. just the one year we had, I mean, understandably, we, just, we have a sign up that year with Dr. Willis, Jay Robertson, Jeremy Bonderman, Zemaya, I think Carlos end so having four pitchers down there that well, we had to make sure they got their they Kind of, you know i was always really that random guy to start if a guy wasn't here or if a guy got to put on waivers so i think in the end it would have been nicer for my career first day to stick at one and, and maybe get a, you know a better look from the advanced scouts and you know coordinators to see me in one position for one time and maybe possibly get a call you know to the big leagues but uh you know Stuff happens
1: for a reason, and then I guess it didn't go in my favor. No, no question. Once again, John Pielo here, former minor league pitcher Scott Drucker. Now, when you know, in two thousand six, I would assume that was one of your arm arm operations.
2: Uh, End of six, correct. End of six. I missed those seven.
1: Yeah, so that that you know that was probably tough on you as you were, as you were you know coming up through the system and you know that you know if you're not a guy that's like you know 100 percent on their radar you know there's a chance that you might not make it back to that team right. Correct.
2: That was that was the toughest part. Um, you know, Oakland. I felt great ties with Oakland and uh, having that arm surgery was during you know kind of the tail end of the money ball and really promoting. You know, older guys per se at the time they were just putting up numbers, not so much the, you know per se prospects that were getting paid. So, you know, they kind of put me back this step, and then you know going into the spring training with them the following year post surgery, dj they kind of you know baby you and make sure everything's right. And going into that spring training, my second week I was released. So, it was a little disappointing, um, just not being able to get a fair shot. Um, but they did take care of the surgery, like I said. I thought good relationship with them and ben. no grudges There was just. You know, a little disheartening that I didn't really get a, a real shot at spring training in but and then it does set you back, you know, especially just because your agent
1: a big factor in this game nowadays. Yeah, it definitely is. Now, you end up uh, you end up playing uh, some independent ball that season. It's with the Grand Prairie team. And, you know, this is probably you you try to do everything you can to get yourself exposed so you could, you know, get yourself another shot with a major league organization. Uh, you know, did, did you feel strong as, as things were going on that year post-surgery? Yeah, yeah. It was one of those,
2: you know, you start to question, you know, did you just, your first time being released is always a tough uh you know, situation you don't expect it but I went through with all the surgery and everything else and I felt strong and healthy you know, I wanted to get out and play prove you know people wrong so uh, luckily I linked up with um, you know that Grand Parade team who well, actually was managed by Petey Cavilia. so I knew I was in good hands with the next big leader who you know understood for trying to you know play independent ball to get back into affiliated so had a good you know manager you know having our back and trying to get us out of that league so um, it was a great experience, great group of guys, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, talk down about independent ball, but it, it is some of the best times you'll have with your you know, teenage baseball, because they're always really striving for one goal to, you know, kind of win, but also get out of there, so, they're not, there's no one really above them or under them, or simply like the minor leagues, so, they're playing all for, for each other and then also trying to help each other get out of there and, you know, get a, get a hope for a game back for the
1: affiliated ball. Yeah, and i tell you, you could probably see a direct correlation from what you were talking about before when you had guys on your team and, you know, the A's organization, you know, uh, you know and and, and uh, the Tigers organization, you know, when, when you had major league guys that were, let's say, either on rehab assignments or trying to get their work in at the minors so they could eventually get to the major league level, there was probably a little bit of parallels. For what you were going through when you were playing independent ball, right? Very, very much so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, of course, you end up uh, getting into, into the Tigers organization. You get a chance to pitch down there for a couple of years. You know, you know. Throughout that time, did you ever feel like you were really in a spot where you had a chance to get a legitimate major league call? My,
2: well, you know, I think it was. A... 2009, my first year in AAA, um, I had a pretty good string of, I opened the season pretty well, and I think it was the year that Maya blew out, and, you know, there was talk about everybody, you know, who was in the meet at the time, and
3: I know my name was one of them,
2: but I think it was just, uh, some people, I wasn't on the 40 man at the time except for them, but, you know, really make a guy, you know, places of mine on the 60, and then make a big roster move, it was unlikely, but... That was probably my closest shot at that time, and then after that, my season kind of was hard to find it out, I tried everything else. After, after that, I tried pants up, pants down, socks up, uh, you know, <laughs> eating the same meal, trying different stuff, it just, uh, I had a, a bad run of uh, innings after that.
1: Yeah, everything you could try superstition-wise, just, you know, didn't seem to work for you.
2: Exactly.
1: Yeah, now, you know, you, you end up deciding, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, is that after uh, the 2012 season that, you know, you, learned, you weren't you going to pursue it anymore. Had you uh, had, had you gotten any thoughts or any, any uh, dialogue involved in, like, you know, maybe wanting to become an agent, or had you decided to stop playing baseball first?
2: Um, I, I came up with a couple of baseball just uh, following my time with Detroit. I went back to that Grand 13 for a month. Um, just kind of looking ready to hang out the police, and I ended up in Taiwan. Um, I pitched well over there, had a great time, really enjoyed the culture and then went to Venezuela, then my auto was barking. Came home, jobs are getting real scarce. And I was humbled with where I've been in my career and uh, you know, happy with where I, you know, everything I've done in it. Um, that you know, and also as a player I used to do the meetings all the time. Um, just to kinda of understand the other side of the game, whether it was, you know, scouting or front office or the business side, so I never thought about the agent world per se. But um, luckily, my agent, when I was playing Brian Griefer, he, um when I told him I wanted to retire, he was, you know, the one who approached me about, you know, becoming an agent advisor, and I it kind of fell into my lap and been going with it for the past two years now.
1: All right, and uh, what, what would you what would you say is like, uh, you know, the biggest, uh, let's say, the attribute that you would have to have to be a good sports agent?
2: I mean, honestly, honestly goes a long way in this game um, because you want to build the biggest thing with our end is, and as a player, and, and as a player, when I was, you know, being a player and having an agent and now doing the opposite end, it's just being up front with your guys. You know, there's there's definitely ups and downs in this game. You know, I mean, we all know you got to be you're in the Hall of Fame or possibly nowadays we're in the Hall of Fame. Um, so if there's ups and downs in this game, you got to stick with your guys. It's the, you know, the grind of the minor leagues, understanding, you know, that's. That background, and, you know, our, our high school is ready to go and leave home and move to Spokane, Washington on their on their own and, and play professional baseball. Just, you know, being honest, you know, pull the curtain back for players and families and explain to them, you know, the process of everything going on, really.
1: No, listen, it sounds like you, you got yourself into something good, and, you know, hopefully this is something you're able to, uh, you know, kind of get yourself a second career with. I wish you the best of luck. Scott, thanks for having a couple minutes today. No, sounds, I appreciate
0: it. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with Scott Drucker, former pitcher with the Athletics and Tigers organization and now Major League Baseball players agent. So we're going to take our first break. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on, past ball show. Don't forget to check out com and like my page on Facebook.
3: Hey, guys and gals. Want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on TV? and come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day. Just 12 dollars per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just 6 dollars On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-priced appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WING. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the highest goddess girls anywhere. Hope to see you there.
0: You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition.
2: Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds.
0: On MTR Radio.
3: And you're listening to MTR Radio. A flipping Out Radio production. And you've got it. Hot.
0: Hot. 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 in the steel.
2: always covering the most current topics today check us out
0: on mtrradio.com we will offer packages to advertise on our website and on mtr radio get your name in front of over five and a half million people advertise on mtr today email info at mtrmedia.com for details Welcome back, John Piali, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, and I'm going to jump right into another interview I recorded this past week with former Major League pitcher Bryce Flory, and Bryce pitched for the San Diego Padres, the Milwaukee Brewers, and of course the Boston Red Sox, and what Florey is always going to be remembered for was being hit with that line drive right in his eye off the bat of Ryan Thompson while he was pitching in 2000 for the Boston Red Sox, an unfortunate situation, something that obviously gave him a lot of problems. It was very difficult for him to deal with for several years, and you're going to hear how he copes with it, and, of course, a lot of things going on with his Major League career. So hopefully you guys enjoy this interview with former Major League pitcher Bryce Florey. Good afternoon. It's John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Bryce Florey. Bryce, what's going on, man? Um, oh, no, I'm just uh, recovering
2: from the Christmas stress during the last couple days. All my family's here in Charleston, so we've been running around crazy the
1: last couple of days. No, good deal, man. First, I want to, you know, send you a little bit of congratulations for getting, uh, you know, the head coaching job. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, you know, what got you into that and, you know, what you're going to be up to with it.
2: Well, when uh, I 20 a few years back, I, uh, I coached a few years of independently. You know, I was trying to get out of football and or scouting, and uh, I did coach a few years, but it just, didn't work out with the organization, so I started coaching travel ball in Charleston and went back to school and you know, got on my credential so I could uh, teach and just to try to get into that profession while I was coaching. And uh, a private school job opened this last year, so I will actually be a head coach at a, a private school here in Charleston. And I'm not teaching, but I'm able to coach and see
1: where it goes from there. No, listen, man, I you know, wish you the best, hope everything works out with that. And, of course, Bryce, you know, you had a chance to pitch in the Major Leagues for, you know, a series of years. You know, you came up through the Padres organization. Tell us a little bit about, you know, you, you coming up to the Major Leagues, making your Major League debut, and how it how it went for you from the beginning. Well, so it was,
2: uh, so you said I worked with the Padres for, and... I guess I was there about six years in the Mirror Lake High School. So I took the slow off the slow lower out with the uh, multiple stops in A ball and uh, rookie ball, off and got caught up in ninety four It was filled with the Padres, And of course that's everyone else says it's a dream come true. And it was it was a cool experience and uh, you know, I had a little success early and Never, never really went back down to the minor leagues until I got injured with Boston, you know,
1: years later. So, I don't know, cool. You know, around the time you came up, of course, you know, you made your major league debut in 1994 and that was the strike-shortened season. Did that impact you in any way or was it, are there anything that, you know, impacted you in a, in a different type of way than you would have if you were up during in a major league season, like a regular season?
2: Well, uh, it showed me how much of, uh, baseball is a business. In um, the minors, you kind of sheltered from all of that. You know, the, the thing that's like a strike, and I guess it would be so much nowadays because there's so much access to everything in the world. <laughs> but back in '94, you know, the internet was just coming through, and uh, we didn't have much access to the big league stuff. So as I got called out, then was there for a month. Um, They were able to send a player down from each organization, and I was actually the guy that sent down back to Triple-A. So I finished out the season in Triple-A, and um, of course I was on a major league roster. So next year, you know, I had to wait for the strike to settle before we go back to spring training. So this guy showed me, you know, I guess, what, what baseball is all about at the big league level. And there a lot of things, of course, I didn't understand going on, but, you know, we stood as a union, and the young I, not knowing a lot of the things that were happening, just said, okay, well, you guys are experienced and smart, and we're going to do this together. And, you know, you see the contracts today, and part of, part of the reason for those contracts is in 94, where when we stood out and, and made the owners, you know, start paying out some money, and of course there's nothing like today, but uh, that, was, that was one of the big uh, things that the owners were saying, they are saying, you know, we don't have the money to pay guys a couple million dollars a year, and now they have enough to pay them, <laughs> 20 million dollars a year. So, uh, a lot, a lot different, but that
1: was the way to No, Absolutely, man. I tell you, you look back at that time, and that was kind of a, you know, really the turning point within the tables kind of turning into the players' favor. Really, prior to that, of course, for years and years in baseball, there was the reserve clause with free agency coming in the 70s, and then, you know, a lot of the uh, issues going on with the collusion in the 80s, so this, this last strike, you know, in 1994, ter- really turns out to be the best thing to happen for the players overall, and obviously the players playing now or feeling the residual effects of it all.
2: Yeah, definitely. It it was a a tough time for a young player like myself, but, you know, as I said, these older guys kind of said, look, they've done it before, and we're going to do it again, and, you know, the the union had all of us, all our best interests in mind, and, you know, they, they actually, part of the agreement when we did fine was the guys like myself got our service time back and I guess we all got the service time back so that even it worked when it went to uh arbitration and pre-agency you know you still got those days back so um my first year I was up for a month, and then the strike hit well then when I started the next year and the agreement was made I actually had more than the month as far as service time goes which is huge when it comes to
1: you know arbitration contracts and, and pre agency. No, absolutely, man, and the way, you know, the way it sets up, obviously, you know, you're able to uh, get, a, you know, qualify for arbitration earlier and eventually free agency. So, you know, I'm glad that ended up working out in your favor. You know, I, you know during, during your time with the Padres, you know, you, you came from a, you know, from a team once you came up there. Uh, the, the team was kind of still rebuilding. There was a lot, of, uh, a lot of pieces to be put into place. Of course, Tony Gwynn was the one constant through it all. But, you know, during the course of his career, there was a couple rebuilding uh, times, and that was one of them. But, you know, really towards uh, 1996, the Padres started to really put something together. Did you notice kind of a kind of a change from the team, you know, kind of developing itself into more of a contender during your time there?
2: Well, I just knew, you know, when I was there, we acquired some big-name guys. And, you know, with the young guys like myself and Joey Hamilton and Doug Bockler and Scott Sanders and Tim Wells. We didn't feel like we were rebuilding. we thought it was our time to get to the big leagues and, and start, you know, winning some games. And, you know, of course it was a fire sale to everyone else, but the young guys, we just looked down the chance to pitch in the big leagues. And, you know, we had er- Dustin Hermanson, and there was a bunch of pitchers that were like, you know, we can get guys out, we believe. And they got Ken Mitty, Steve Finley, joiner, Joyner. Fernando, so you look around. We had Ricky Henderson. So that was a that was a lot of good players on that team with a young pitching staff with Andy Ashby and Andy Davis. And, so we felt like you know with, with the pitching that we had, with the arms that we had, we we could contend. And then unfortunately, I got trained in '96 for probably the final piece of the puzzle, which was Greg Vaughn, for the Padres to move on. And I got shipped to Milwaukee along with Malone and Mark uh, Infield. So I was. Part of the World Series run, I guess it was two years later, on the bad side, as I I was uh, sitting in Milwaukee.
1: Yeah, so, you know, it's the way it ends up working out, and, you know, obviously the nucleus that you built, like you mentioned, with a lot of younger players kind of led the team to be in the position that it was, and, you know, unfortunately you had to be one of the, one of the uh, pieces to get a guy like Greg Vaughn, and, you know, I'm sure you could see how somebody like that would help, but, you know, it also it also gave you another opportunity. You know, you ended up in Milwaukee for a couple of years. You know, tell us a little bit about the time down there.
2: Well, it was a big culture shock, obviously, from uh, I played in the Midwest a few years, so it wasn't that culture. It was a culture between the National League and the American League. Um, it was just, a, you know, it was like slow-pick softball defense, <laughs> you know, when you got to the American League and Milwaukee. was really bad for that. Was, you know, we had a bunch of, you know, hitters, DH types all over the field. Um, so it was, it was just it was a different. It was a different ball game. You know, we're playing the, you know, the White Sox teams and the Cleveland teams and teams that we, you know, we, we really didn't match up a little with that much because, you know, there was a lot of, of disparity as far as who was paying who. I guess it still happens to a certain extent, but you know, it, it was tough there. Um, it was, it was fun. I had a good time and I enjoyed, you know, the old. Uh, Cal Stadium and all that,
1: but it, it was definitely different going from Nashville to American Yeah, I tell you, you look at, you look at it like this, and uh, you know, I know you were on the team in 1997, but were you, were you on the Brewers when they were notified that they were going to be going to the American League in 1998? Um, I was, and then I got traded right here, so we, we went back to
2: Nashville. And uh, I got traded to the American League, <laughs> so uh, that was kind of funny. Uh, when I got traded to Detroit that off season, and you know, once again, I was, as you said, and, and you know, not many people think of it this way. I'm not sure a player you covered, me. that was been a big move to pitch back in the National League as opposed to the American League, uh, especially at that time with all the uh, different things going on and the run scored and all that, and the, you know, the DH at that point was a. Uh, Every team was a 30 to 40 homer guy, and that was a huge difference when there was pitchers involved in, it, you know, having the bat and also, you know, some defense being played. So I went to Detroit after that, and, um, you know, so I, I got to see him change leagues, but it big, I changed teams again.
1: Yeah, now, once again, John Piero here with former Major League pitcher Bryce Florey. Now, you know, you end up with the Red Sox in 2000, and, of course, uh, you know, you end up getting struck by that line drive, unfortunately, off the bat of Ryan Thompson on uh, this... Uh, September the 8th, um, obviously that had to be a horrifying moment for you to experience. I mean, it was it was a tough thing to see, you know, either at the stadium or, you know, on TV. I mean, that must, that must have been a pretty tough moment for you. Uh, did you have any, like, immediate fears once that happened, that, uh, you know, like you were fearing maybe the worst and something like that?
2: Well, I, I honestly thought at that point once I... Like Got up and walked off, and was, you know my eye was swollen and it was shot. You know the pain was, as, you know as you could imagine. Um, I thought I didn't know if I was gonna make it. I really didn't because you know you think the worst, and you know, like I don't know where the ball hit me. I just knew that my whole face was felt so like this all fire, and I knew I'd got hit there. And I was like you know that, that might have hit something, but shouldn't have hit. It. I wasn't you know scared maybe it hit me and my brain was going to swell. Whatever you want to think as far as thinking the worst, I did think that, and, uh, you know, went straight to the hospital. And um, my eye was shot, and they came in and did a test on my eye and said, well, it doesn't look like you're blind, but we don't know anything further than that to uh, what's going to happen and, and how this is going to play out. So I guess at that point they weren't scared that it was going to affect my, you know, Overall well being, except I wasn't sure that I would ever see it again out of that eye. So, um, that was, you know, right after the incident. So, um, yes, I did feel fear, fear for the worst and, uh,
1: was pretty dang bad. Yeah it definitely was and you know as you go through it obviously you have to go through a you know pretty extensive you know rehabilitation process I mean you gotta you you gotta make sure that you know first of all you're going to be able to see straight and you know obviously command your stuff. Tell us a little bit about the different steps that you went to to get yourself back on the mound.
2: Well I at first I had a patch on my eye and then uh, it was kind of funny when I went back, I had a gauze stuck up my nose, it was probably a one foot long gauze was stuck in the nasal cavity, which was, just, you know, two inches to pull these things out, and had a little cast on my nose with a patch, and, and so that's where I started from. And it was just, I had blood behind my retina, so I wasn't sure if I was going to ever don't ever actually drain out. So basically, I was seeing through my visual field, but it was that it was black. I couldn't see anything except the left, you know, the upper and lower parts of my field. And um, when I went back home, as I was getting better, I, I, you know, was just trying to play catch, and I would miss every ball because my depth perception or my vision was so so much different than my left eye. And uh, so it just started really like from when you're a kid and you throw the ball off the roof or toss it off the the house. And, and I, I really was doing that by myself, just trying to see if I could uh, do anything. And the whole time I was like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to do this. And the bottom line was if my vision came back to a certain point, then I was going to try it. But I didn't know that was going to happen until it actually did happen. So next spring training, I went in and i was seeing about 20 80 out of my right eye and 20 20 on my left so my depth reception was awful because the vision was different and every time the ball off, i got to a where i could play catch every time i got to a certain point my left eye you know could see it from the time it was thrown, and then my right eye would catch it as it was getting closer and it, it looked like a little slider every time the ball would come i would flinch because now i could see it with two eyes instead of just the one uh, so that's as far back as it goes to okay how am i going to figure this out how am i going to do this but it was you know days after practice of catching buckets and buckets of balls and i remember going in and telling joe kerrigan like hey i can't do this thing because my leg is so sore <laughs> from just bending over bending over bending over trying to make myself available to get on the field so i never felt like my stuff was going to be bad because it didn't hurt my arm. It was just a matter of if I could, you know, figure out how not to be scared out of myself. And what I did find was I wasn't scared, but I did flinch. And it wasn't as I was throwing a, a better flinch in my brain. It was just my brain was saying, okay, <laughs> you're going to flinch. And, you know, I didn't know it. I would watched film and it was obviously happening.
1: <laughs> yeah, no question. Once again, John out here with Bryce Floyd. Now, you know, as, as you're going through this, I mean, how long within your own, like, recollection did it take for you to be able to throw a ball and just not have a fear of it just coming back to you so fast? Or did you ever get yourself back to the point where you kind of threw the ball with ease without, like, the concern of something like that happening? I did. I
2: ended up getting to that point. I, I look back I probably handled it the wrong way. Um coming back as quick as I did because I knew at that point the Red Sox did not have my best interests at heart. So I was fighting with them just to get back on the field. But my thought was, I need to get back on the field because when something happens, then I need to resume my career if I can. If, If it would have been maybe a different group of people, it might have happened a little different and they would have sent me to the side and said, hey, let's just do this slow and picture one step at a time. Well my you know, my step was, Hey, three minutes here, let's get going. And it took me a while. I, I remember throwing a lot of pitches outside or real far inside because I didn't want them to hit it on the barrel. And I do remember one day in the locker room, just looking at myself as we've all done numerous times in our lives from when you do something good or bad and just I was like, Hey, you gotta either throw them all over the plate or quit and there was no shame in me quitting after you know, what happened, but at the same time, that wasn't an option for me. But I knew that I had to just let it go. And it took me a lot longer than, you know, a lot harder than me saying, yeah, just let it go. But I finally ended up doing it. And it probably wasn't that first year that I pitched. Because um, that next year, you know, I threw a lot of simulated games and I went to A ball and double A. And then I got back to the Red Sox and then they released me. And then I went to triple with the. Um, but, you know, every time I put on those glasses, it was like, okay, here's a reminder why you wear wearing these glasses, and it's just, you know, it could happen again, so you don't really ever lose it, but, you know, I just had that talk with myself, like, hey, Make some or you're
1: be home anyway. Yeah, no question about it, and I tell you, you know, through all these years later, now that you look back on it, did you ever think you got yourself, you know, not necessarily from a physical standpoint because, you know, you established that you never really lost anything in the ability to throw the ball and pitch like you could before, but did you ever get yourself, were you able to get yourself mentally to a point where you feel like you could have pitched like before the, uh, the incident happened?
2: I do. I do. The problem is, my, it, it, the story was never finished because when I did finally get everything, my eyes got better, my uh, I got my contact straightened out. I ended up going to the Marlins and I blew out my elbow. And I was, and this is honestly not true, the night that my elbow was left on the mound, <laughs> I was getting called back up to the big leagues that night. They had already sent the guys from um, extended spring, I was in there the knee, I was going to take my spot. I was on to the Marlins Big League team, and my ligament blew out. So, two Tommy John surgeries later, that's how I ended up in the independently. So, I was never really ready to do it, I was physically ready to do it, and then my arm blew out, so I was rehabbing for basically the next three years. So, that's unfortunately what I never got to get
3: back out
1: there because the elbow finally gave out. And once again, John Pielli here with former Major League pitcher Bryce Florey. Now, you know, you obviously mentioned you had a chance to pitch for the Padres, for the Brewers, for the Tigers, and the Red Sox. And you are involved with a lot of other, or a couple other organizations. Was there any moment throughout your career that kind of stands out, like in a positive way where you you, you remember a game or a situation or something that kind of uh, stands out that you're always going to take you?
2: Well, so I think the whole experience is was the positives. I think, as I said earlier, was it, it was more, I was subjected to a lot of the business side of the game, whether it was a trade or a release for the wrong reasons, um, stuff like that. I, I have all positive thoughts other than, you know, I mean, and I don't think the trades were negative, it was just part of the game. Uh, but I, I was one of those guys that... Every time I laced up the shoes, it was, it was positive for me and, and getting on the mound and, and being able to compete. And, you know, just I walked out on that mound a lot of times or on the field or I batting practice and just looked around. and I'm like, yeah, I'm playing with the best players in the world. And that to me was a positive. Uh, it doesn't matter who I struck out or who yeah. hit a long run off of me. I just feel like, you know, I put myself in that position that, you know, my dreams were fulfilled as far as to make for the big leagues and uh, you know, I of a lot of good and bad situations,
1: but just doing the big leagues is all positive as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, listen, Bryce, I want to thank you for having some time. Wish you the best of luck with the new coaching job. Congratulations the whole thing and uh, I'll talk to you soon, man. Thanks. Alright, thanks a
2: lot.
0: See ya. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with Bryce Flory. What we're going to do is going to take another break and we'll be back to finish up the program after this. Hey, I'm Sean Big Daddy Lynch. I'm Joe DeLisanti, and I'm Tim O'Brien, and, and we're, we're your favorite
3: tailgaters. Listen to our show every Tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on NTR Radio. We'll tempt your palate with football, basketball, baseball, hockey—you name it, we got it. That's right, we do. We'll stir things up, voice what's grinding our gears, and just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk Radio. Are you ready for the tailgaters?
0: is empty blog go
1: ahead laugh laugh all you want but the fact of the matter is this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told okay
0: Bases, empty blog Bases, is empty blog Bases, empty blog Bases, is empty blog Bases, is empty blog. Welcome back. John Pielli Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Obviously, we're going to get right into the blog. And, of course, if you don't follow it, on uh, JohnPielli.com basis Empty blog. Um, you could also check it out on MTRmedia.com slash John And if you're listening on a computer, you could just click over and read some of my articles. But a couple of things I got into was kind of talking about the Hall of Fame a little bit and – you know, we talk about players that maybe should deserve a little more consideration. And you also talk about some players that are playing now, whether they are a Hall of Fame player or not, or could be, you know, once their career is done. And a lot of people have brought up Carlos Beltran. And Carlos Beltran has had a very good career, of course, several years with the Kansas City Royals, a little bit with the Houston Astros, and then his seven years with the Mets, with the one year with the Giants. And in the two years with the St. Louis Cardinals, of course, he's got three more years with the New York Yankees where he probably will call it a career at that point. And one thing that stands out for Carlos Beltran, if you're looking at his career, he's been a fantastic postseason player, one of the best postseason hitters really in the history of the game. In his career, he's got a three thirty three, four forty five, six eighty three stash line, which is a 1.128 OPS, 16 homers and 40 RBIs on 180 at-bats. Obviously he has missed a little time during a regular season due to injury, which has kind of set him back a little bit. But for his career he's hitting two eighty three with a three fifty nine OBP, a four ninety six slugging, you know, for an eight fifty four OPS. In sixteen seasons he's had 1,346 runs scored, 2,228 hits, 446 doubles, 77 triples, 358 homers, and 1,327 RBIs. If he were to retire today, he would not be a Hall of Fame player. But he's coming off three straight solid seasons since his last injury, and the Yankees deal is for three more years. Obviously, if he compiles three more seasons that are similar to the last three, his chances are going to improve. So I'm going to make a hypothetical situation here and assume that his triple stash line remains the same, and that'll give him an extra 80 runs scored, 160 hits, 33 doubles, 25 homers, and 88 RBIs over each of the next three seasons. That'll bring his career totals to 1,586 runs scored, 2,708 hits, 545 doubles, 433 homers, and 1,591 RBIs. With all fairness to Beltran, I'm not going to put his career numbers against center fielders like Willie Mays, Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, or even that of Ken Griffey Jr. But I I picked three different players that will kind of tell a different story and all of whom happen to be in baseball's Hall of Fame. Kirby Puckett, won two World Series for the Minnesota Twins, retired obviously earlier than he should have due to injury. He hit three eighteen for his career, had an eight thirty seven OPS. In 12 seasons, he had a, 1,071 runs scored, 2,304 hits, 414 doubles, 207 homers, and 1,085 RBIs. His average numbers per season come out better than Beltran, even though Beltran is a higher OPS. But if you give Puckett a mulligan for his injuries and a subsequent injury death, I'd give a slight advantage to Puckett. But... I would consider Beltran on that same path. Next, I'm going to go with Duke Snyder. Duke Snyder won two World Series as well, played 18 years in the Major Leagues. In my opinion, a better comparison than that of Puckett. Snyder hit 295 for his career, had a nine nineteen OPS. He scored 1,259 runs, had 2,116 hits, 358 doubles, 407 home runs, and 1,333 RBIs. As good as Snyder was, I'm going to go with Beltran in this as, as having the advantage over being a better player and more of a Hall of Fame candidate. Finally, there's Andre Dawson. Andre Dawson never won a World Series title in his 21 seasons. Does it doesn't sound familiar? Beltran, unless he wins a World Series with the Yankees in the next three years, may go throughout his career without winning one. But Dawson. Was a 279 hitter with an 806 OPS. He scored 1,373 runs, had 2,774 hits, 503 doubles, 438 home runs, and 1,591 RBIs for his career. You look back at Beltran's estimated home runs and RBIs, which, if you even remember what I said before, Beltran would have 433 home runs, 1,591 RBIs over 19 seasons, the exact same amount of RBIs as Andre Dawson. Dawson played his first eight seasons in center field for Montreal. You know about Beltran making a switch to right field, where he's probably going to play with the Yankees. But I see how Beltran is projected to finish with better numbers and Snyder, and it's eerily similar to Dawson. Snyder made the Hall of Fame because he was one of the best in the game. Those career numbers did not reflect that. So if you want to go with the idea that if Dawson is in, so should Beltran, I don't have a problem with it. But to compare the game's best center fielders and outfielders, it's probably not a fair discussion. I would still put him in, but I don't think it's as much of a slam dunk. And another guy that I wanted to talk about is on the ballot this year, and I've mentioned before, and he's kind of a guy that I think is a fringe guy, a guy who I think should be a Hall of Famer, but I'm not saying is that much of a slam dunk, and that, of course, is Fred the Crime Dog McGriff. And Fred McGriff, if you look at the way things have happened, uh, you know, is a guy that kind of isn't getting a lot of attention with the guys involved in steroids and the guys that are, are probably more slam dunk candidates, you know, getting more attention right now, but you know, you look at some of the best first basemen ever played a game, and obviously Lou Gehrig comes to mind. And if you look at Lou Gehrig's career, you know, it's certainly something that is, is something that's really uncomparable because he was such a ridiculous hitter. But Fred McGriff, for his career, hit two hundred eighty four at a five oh nine slugging percentage and eight eighty six OPS. He finished his career with 2,490 hits, 441 doubles 493 home runs which obviously on ironically is the same amount that the iron horse finished with 1550 RBI you want to compare him to Jimmy Fox uh, he's probably not but a guy who I do want to compare him to. Um, Orlando Cepeda he was a dominant player obviously from 58 to 74 his last couple seasons was probably not as much of an everyday player but he was selected to the, by the veterans committee for nomination in 1999 he had 297 for his career McGriff had a higher slugging percentage and OPS and McGriff also had more hits more doubles and home runs as well as RBIs Cepeda didn't strike out at a, a, as much of a rate as McGriff did so that needs to be noted but based on numbers, in my opinion, if Cepeda is a Hall of Famer, so is Fred McGriff. Another guy is Tony Perez. Obviously, this is an easy one. Tony Perez was a very good player, one who deserves to get his number retired by the Reds, but in my opinion, probably falls short of being a Hall of Famer. But because of the, the first baseman I mentioned before, he—you know, I'm going to bring up his stats, 272 average for his career. He slugged 463 OPS 804 and had 379 home runs for his career. McGriff topped all those numbers. Perez finished with 2,732 hits and 505 doubles, more than McGriff but in my opinion, is not Hall-worthy by those numbers alone. So obviously, if Perez is a Hall of Famer, Fred McGriff should be. Here's the most interesting one that I want to get into, and that is Willie Stargell, Pops. You know, he's one of the best players in the history of the Pittsburgh Pirates organization and was certainly the best player, particularly after the death of Roberto Clemente on his own team. And Stargell made it in his first year of eligibility, was, was inducted by the Baseball Writers Association of America in 1988, getting 82.4% of the vote. Star Joel is the epitome of a Hall of Fame player. And obviously when he played, he was the top first baseman in all of Major League Baseball. Let's look at some of his numbers. 529 slugging percentage, 889 OPS. They were higher than McGriff's. And in, part, in, in parts of two less seasons, Stargell had less hits, twenty two hundred ninety two, less doubles, four hundred twenty three, home runs for four hundred seventy five, and less RBIs with fifteen hundred forty, as well as a slightly lower batting average, two eighty two to McGriff's two eighty four. So if if these numbers come out strong, you know, stronger than Stargell, then obviously McGriff belongs in a Hall of Fame, and he's a guy that. You know, I don't think he's gotten enough attention. People don't even talk about him. But I think without a doubt is a Hall of Fame player. And hopefully over time you'll see him get progressively more votes and people will start to appreciate Fred McGriff as really one of the top first basemen to ever play in Major League Baseball history. Speaking of the Hall of Fame, I, I decided to write an article about a kind of a lesser-known umpire and a guy who was known enough to gain Hall of Fame induction by the Veterans Committee in 1989 while he was still alive. And, you know, that is Al Barlick. And I think when you think of some of the best umpires of all time, It's pretty easy to remember guys like Jocko Conlon and Bill Clem and Tom Connolly, Doug Harvey, Harry Wendelstadt. And I could probably throw some more names out there, but those are remembered as some of the greatest umpires to ever uh, umpire in a game. Hank O'Day was a guy who was inducted last year into Baseball's Hall of Fame, but nobody, you know, not too many people think about Uh, Barlick as much as his impact at a game, but obviously is a guy that doesn't get talked about a lot. Uh, He was involved in a couple odd events during the 1963 season. Umpires were told to crack down on ball calls on pitchers. He threatened to quit after a dispute over a balk led, led to him ejecting a pitcher. He, he left his crew for a couple days and rejoined them. He got a new job after the 1963 season, given the possibility they might not return, but he came back for the 1964 season. But amongst things he did, he umpired the last game at Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, the first game at Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati, both in 1970 as well as the first game. Uh, of the Houston Astrodome in 1965, he was also the crew chief of the first ever NLCS in 1969 between the Mets and Braves. His career spans from 1940, and uh, you know went, went through 1971. So he's for parts of 31 seasons was a Major League Baseball umpire. But you know, here's a guy that certainly had his share of accomplishments. It was actually Bill Clem who he took over for for his first game in 1940. And, you know, he was the first base umpire for Jackie Robinson's Major League debut with the Brooklyn Dodgers on April 15th in 1947. He umpired in seven World Series in 46, 50, 51, 54, 58, 62, and 67. And seven All-Star games in 42, 49, 52, 55, 59, 66, and 70. And, you know, it was a weird thing that happened actually in a 1949 All-Star game. He suddenly left the game while the umpires at the time had a standard rotation. Now, you know, the home plate umpire would move to right field, yada, 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 when they had the six umpires. And after he was done umpire and home plate, he left, leaving without the the game without an umpire in right field, and no reason was ever stated for him leaving. But a guy that certainly was around the game a lot ends up in baseball Hall of Fame. But when you think of the other names of the guys that I mentioned before, you don't hear Al Barlick's name mentioned. So you know this was, a, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the 18 year anniversary of his death, where he passed away in the year of 1995 and as we just got over the christmas week you know you remember some of the birthdays on that day and obviously you remember billy martin's tragic passing in an automobile accident which happened on christmas day of 1989 but you know Nellie fox who was a christmas baby was probably one of the most underrated defensive players to ever play in major league baseball history and, you know, he was a guy that certainly died way too soon of cancer in 1975 at age 47. But had he been alive, he would have been disgraced with the amount of time it took him to be inducted in a Baseball's Hall of Fame. From what was said about him as a person, he obviously would have been humble enough to not make an issue of it. But in regards to the position of second base, Nellie Fox set the standard from what an aspiring infielder should model. Never a power hitter. He did everything else exceptional. While there are other second basemen that get more credit, there's not one that could match what Fox did defensively. While he missed the 1946 season due to his service in the military, he was on the Major League Baseball team sparingly, as part of the Philadelphia Athletics. In his first full big league season in 1949, he was part of an infield that set a major league record for most double plays in a season with 217. He played in just 88 games that year, but was involved in turning 68 of the team's double plays. The early criticism of Fox was his inability to hit, like I said. Even when defense was a premium for middle infielders, many doubted whether Fox would be good enough to be an everyday player. He hit 255 in 1949 but was traded by Connie Mack to the Chicago White Sox for catcher Joe Tipton after the season. Though Tipton spent several years in the big leagues, the deal turned out to be a steal for the White Sox, a mistake for Mack. While Mack was known as being being able to sell and trade players because he did not want to pay him, he was also known as a very good talent evaluator. He was obviously wrong about Nellie Fox. For a second baseman that was not a power hitter, Fox – made up for it by being a solid three hundred hitter six times in a ten year span. He was consistently among the league leaders if he didn't lead the AL himself in games played, played appearances, at bats, runs scored, and on many occasions on base percentage. Another thing that didn't stand out that stood out for Fox was the fact that he was never a big base dealer. For a guy that generally batted towards the top of the order, Fox had had just seventy eight stolen bases in his nineteen year career and was actually caught more times, eighty then he, he stole a base. For years, the closest comparison was that of St. Louis Cardinal second baseman Red Shandys, who was inducted into Baseball Hall of Fame in 1989. While that was 26 years after Shandys retired, Fox was a superior defender and more consistent throughout his career. Fox never saw more than 21.6% of the Hall of Fame vote while he was still alive. In his last year of Hall eligibility, the Baseball Writers Association of America in 1985, he fell just two votes shy of getting in. While the Veterans Committee finally selected him in 1997, the baseball experts, and I always knock these experts because they think they know everything, should have valued his comp- contributions to the game better. I know the Sabre guys would have had him in within his first five years of eligibility. Ozzie Smith was 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 not much of a question of whether he would have been, neither should Nellie fox, so I leave you on that Nellie Fox absolutely should have made the hall of fame not only while he was still alive, but within his first couple of years of eligibility because he had a similar impact on the game to that of Ozzie Smith. But I hope you guys enjoyed the program today. A big thanks to Vance Law, Bryce Florey, Scott Drucker for being part of the program. And once again, a big reminder, Happy New Year, everybody. Hope it's everything that you guys want it to be. So thanks a lot, John Pieli Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to tweet at me at John underscore Pielle. Uh, download the MTR Radio app on your iPhone or Android Android device, check out johnpiele.com, like my page on Facebook, and obviously check out my website for all the interviews and the past shows. Have a good week, everybody.